take your Bibles, and I hope you have your Bibles today, because we're going to be looking at five verses in the Old Testament that give prophecies about our Savior's birth. And over the next four weeks, I want to look at a couple of different groups of people who are involved in the Christmas story that we often overlook. And uh, this week, we're going to look at the prophets at Christmas. Next week, we'll look at Zacharias. Some of you remember the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth in uh, Luke chapter 1. But today, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me, 1 Peter chapter 1 with me, and we're going to look at uh, the prophets here at uh, Christmas time. And last week, and during our praise and testimony time, I believe that uh, Billy referenced this passage. And frankly, I had already planned to preach from this passage, but this sort of solidified, yeah, this is what I need to preach from. So I'm going to read to you 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, and uh, then we're going to pray. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Let me read this to you. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired, And search diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us did they minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. Father, thank you uh, for giving us your word and preserving it, causing it to be translated in a way that is understandable to us. We're thankful that your word never fails. We're thankful that your word is settled forever in heaven. We're thankful that your words give us life. And we pray this morning as we Uh, Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, that you would open our minds to truth, that we'd have a better understanding of this passage and of our place in this grand tapestry of history that you are creating one strand at a time. We thank you, Father, for these prophets who by faith wrote down things that they didn't even fully comprehend or understand themselves. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the the atonement for our sin. Now we ask for greater boldness to preach that to others. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Notice a couple of interesting things here in verse 10, 1 Peter 1, verse 10. It says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. And in verse uh, 11, it says, searching what or what manner of time. Notice those words, inquired and searched. It's a hint to us, it's a clue to us that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, who literally wrote down God's words, did not always understand the prophecies that they were writing down. Things about this that they didn't understand, that they couldn't comprehend. But it's not just the prophets. Look at the uh, end of verse 12 where it says, which things the angels desire to look into. Isn't it interesting to think that the angels are curious about our salvation? Now, angels don't need salvation. They're they're in a different category. All human beings, we need salvation. And the angels, that's a curiosity to them. That's something that they wonder about, something that they, 
think about, something that they desire to look into. Now, the Christian life is about relationships. When I was with the teens this morning, we were talking about this, about relationships. And we have a relationship with God the Father. We have a relationship with God the Son. We have a relationship with God the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but sometimes in my relationship with God, I don't always understand what He's doing. There are things that happen to me and to people I love and people around me. And I I say, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Uh, Take heart that the Old Testament prophets often found themselves in the same boat. They often found themselves in situations and they would say, God, what what are you doing? We don't understand. Why are you allowing this? We don't understand. And yet they were faithful to God and God honors them in this passage by just pointing out that they... They were not the ones who received the grace. They wrote about it. And we are the recipients of that grace. And sometimes in life, you aren't the one who receives the grace. I mean, you have the grace of God. Don't misunderstand. But sometimes you're a channel. You're a conduit for other people to receive God's grace. And so be content with that position. What I want to do, though, is I want to look at five prophecies about uh, Jesus Christ that we find in the Old Testament. Talk a little bit about their significance and how the Prophets may have wondered about these things that they wrote down, and then we'll bring us back to this passage. So if you have your Bibles, good. If you don't, find one of your pew Bibles near you and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 18. Almost all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, the first book is Genesis and then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the fifth book is Deuteronomy. Find Deuteronomy chapter 18 and look with me at verse 18. And I'm going to ask you to keep some of this in your head throughout the sermon. We'll come back to this thought, although we won't come back to this verse. Deuteronomy 18, 18 says this, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee. The thee there is Moses. God is talking to Moses. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, Moses. That's who God's talking to. And will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. I will raise up a prophet from among them like unto thee. This prophecy was written by Moses. And again, I don't know that Moses understood all that was going to happen, but he wrote this prophecy about 1450 BC. So about 1450 years, 1500 years before Jesus was born. That would be like somebody writing a prophecy in 600 AD about something that was going to happen today. Just want to give you an idea of what the time scales are. 1,400 years before Jesus was born, Moses wrote down that God was going to raise up another prophet like Moses, and and this prophet was was going to speak everything that God the Father commanded him. Here's the next prophecy. Keep going to your right to first to Psalm. There's no first Psalm. Psalm 22. Keep going to your right to Psalm. Psalm's about the middle of your Bible. Sometimes Bibles have extensive concordances or other things in the back, helps in the back, and so Psalm doesn't fall in the middle. But Psalm's usually about the middle of your Bible. Psalm 22 and verse 18, and this Psalm is, is um, written by David. So this would have been about 
approximately 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And David says this in Psalm 22 and verse 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. In other words, people are gambling for his clothes. Now, David doesn't write this about himself. David writes this about Jesus. And we know that this particular prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus hung on the cross. He had some clothes and he didn't need them. The Roman soldiers knew he was going to die. And so they gambled for who was going to take particularly that, gar that garment that was woven all in one piece. They didn't want to rip it into parts, so they, they gambled for who would uh, get that part. And here, a thousand years before Jesus is born, David is writing this down. So a thousand years ago, what would that be, 1100 AD? We're talking about before Genghis Khan. We're talking about, about the time of the Crusades, Somebody making a prediction about today. That's the, the time span we're looking at. Turn with me to Isaiah next, Isaiah chapter 7. So we're just looking at some prophets in the Old Testament who made predictions about Jesus' birth. We're looking at what they predicted and we're discussing the fact, we're considering the fact that they probably did not understand themselves exactly what they were writing about. That's why it says they inquired, they searched, searching what or what manner of time. The Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did testify. They're, they're wondering themselves, what can these things mean? And in Isaiah uh, chapter 7 and verse 14, we have a particularly odd prophecy. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The two surprising things about that verse, number one, that a virgin would conceive. I'm sure as Isaiah wrote that down, he thought, now that, that doesn't even make sense. Now we know with the benefit of hindsight that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. We know that, but he's probably thinking, what does that mean? And the second thing is his name will be Emmanuel. What is Emmanuel? What is the significance of that name? It means God with us. This virgin's going to see, conceive, she's going to bear a son, and the son's name will mean God with us. I'm sure he scratched his head thinking, now that, that's an odd name. Name your son God with us. Now again, with hindsight, we know exactly what God the Father had in mind. Who is Jesus Christ? He is God, God the Son. And his birth meant that God had come down, taken on human flesh, and God was now with us. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Um, I just want to draw your attention to Isaiah 53. talks about the suffering Savior. And let's go on to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Micah is in those minor prophets, and so sometimes it's hard to find a Micah among the 12 little books that make up the end of the Old Testament. But Find Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. This is where those of you who are using an electronic device have an advantage because you don't have to find Micah. You just, you know, tap that little button and it gives you all the books and you're looking for M-I-C, right? And you punch that and then you go right to chapter 5. Uh, we, when I was teaching um, at that Christian high school, we would have sword drill competitions. And we had a preacher one time who said, I can find something faster on my iPad then your fastest student can find it in her Bible. So we had a, I think it was a five uh, contest between this young lady who was our fastest 
person to find things in the Bible. And this preacher, he was in his, he was older than I am now. He was fairly, I was going to say ancient. That's not fair to him. He was, he was older. And uh, she won every single time. She was really fast. Um, Micah chapter five, verse two. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That's Micah 5.2. You remember the story of the wise men we find in Matthew? The wise men show up and they say to King Herod, we, we, we've seen this star and the star is announcing the birth of the king of the Jews but we're not sure where to find him. Where might we find him? And Herod, who's not particularly literate, biblically, he's not literate. He, he says to the religious leaders of his day, the high priest and the chief priest, he says, where would they find this king? And these guys, they go right to Micah chapter five and verse two, and they say they're going to find him in Bethlehem. Now, let me ask you, did the wise men find the baby Jesus in Bethlehem? Yes. And this was written, as was Isaiah, this was written about 750 years, 750 years before the time of Jesus' birth. It's as if someone in the 1300s wrote about where someone will be born today and they got it right. That is just incredible. Now, again, I don't know that Micah understood all that he was writing. He knew exactly what God wanted him to write. He wrote it down for us, word for word. But I think there were times they wondered, what does all this mean? Let me show you one other statement about Jesus. And this one is from Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Zechariah 9.9, and um, again, another small book there in the Old Testament, buried among the other 12 minor prophets. Zechariah happens to be one of the longer ones, so it's a little bit easier to find. Some of them are only a page long, and if you turn your pages too quickly, you go right by it. But Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And again, we know that this scripture was fulfilled when Jesus made his entry into Jerusalem, riding on an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the, the people, now the religious leaders didn't see this, but the people recognized this is the Messiah. And so they cut down branches and they laid it in his path. They took off their own uh, coats and they laid it down in front of Jesus. And he came into Jerusalem and they recognized the fulfillment of this prophecy. This was about 500 years before Jesus was born. So it's like we go back to the founding. The first, not the founding, the first colonies here, the first English colonies in North America, 1607 and 1620, the first, very first colonies here in the, in the United States. If someone in one of those colonies had suggested how someone was going to enter one of these cities 500 years later, 
and had gotten it right. That is just incredible. It's just amazing to me. And the, and the prophets wondered about that. Now, every once in a while, I'll go through these prophecies with someone who uh, is not a Christian. And because prophecy is an, a great uh, stamp of authenticity on the truth of the Bible, that the Bible is the Word of God. And so I'll go through these verses with them and let's say, you know what? What I think happened is after Jesus was born and he lived, somebody went back and they changed these passages to fit with Jesus' birth. Now, 200 years ago, you might have argued that, but in the last uh, 100 years or so, the Bedouins, no friends of Christians, the Bedouins found in uh, the caves around the Dead Sea, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And ar archaeologists and, and uh, people who study ancient writings have looked at the, uh, the parchment and the papyrus that it's written on. They've looked at the... Um, at the type of writing and the inks and different things, and they've determined that these scrolls were written before the time of Jesus Christ. They were already written before the time of Jesus Christ. And the sections I, I read to you from Deuteronomy and Psalm and Isaiah and Micah and Ze Zechariah, they're all there before Jesus was even born. It's amazing. So there are some things that are Old Testament prophets knew about Jesus and some things that they wondered at. And one of the things, let's go back now to 1 Peter chapter 1, because I wanted you to see right here in this passage that one of the things they wondered at was that it said both that Jesus, that this coming Messiah, I'm going to call him the coming Savior, the coming Savior would suffer and the coming Savior would be glorified. And they had a hard time reconciling those two things in their minds. How could the coming Savior suffer? Think of Isaiah 53. We didn't read that passage, but you've read the passage. Or the passage in Psalm 22 where they gambled for his garments. On the other hand, in Zechariah and uh, in Deuteronomy, there's this idea that the, Savior would be, the coming Savior would be glorified. And they thought, how can these two things be? Here in 1 Peter chapter uh, 1, again, look with me at verse 11. The prophets searched what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. They didn't understand how this coming Savior could be both suffer and die, but also that he would conquer and that he would rule. Now, again, with the benefit of hindsight, we understand, don't we? We know what happened, and the truth is even stranger probably than we would have imagined as the prophets if we had been in their shoes. There was a promised one. There was a coming Savior. He came. He was named Jesus, and he did many miracles. He healed. He, he gave sight to the blind. He caused lame people to walk. People who were deaf. Just immediately he gave them the ability to hear. There was a great storm on the Sea of Galilee. And just by saying, peace, be still, the storm stopped immediately. He raised people from the dead. Now, if there was a man among us that could do that today, don't you think he would become famous? Don't you think we'd want that guy to be president? I mean, something. This would be great. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day didn't see it that way at all. 
In fact, go back to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. We not, don't, don't, don't need to turn there, but think with me. That predicted exactly where Jesus would be born. And so when those wise men came to Herod's palace, and they said to Herod, hey, uh, we, we, we've seen the star in the east. We know that we've come to worship the new king of the Jews. Where will we find him? Those religious leaders knew exactly where to look. Bethlehem. They told the wise men, Bethlehem. And how many of those religious leaders went with the wise men to find the coming Savior? Yeah, zero. Not one. Now, I'm going to use a crazy analogy, but I, I was trying to think, what would this be like? Let's imagine that, how many of you consider yourself to be football fans? Football fanatics. Okay, a few of you, you understand this. You'll understand this illustration better. Let's imagine that one of our local high school players was being recruited by the top football powers in the United States. I'm not, I'm not talking about UCLA and USC, and certainly not the Cal Bears. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm talking about, we had scouts coming from Alabama and Georgia to recruit this guy. We had guys coming from Michigan and Ohio State to recruit this guy. Now, if you're a football fanatic, don't you think you'd at least go and see this guy play one time? I mean, if he's as good as everybody says and he's just tearing it up on the football field, I think I'd at least go down to Vacaville or Fairfield, wherever he's playing, and I'd at least watch one of his games. Now, here you are, your religious leaders in Herod's day. You know your Bible inside and out. In fact, you know your Old Testament so well that when a couple of strangers show up and say, hey, where is this guy going to be born? You say, hey, Bethlehem, look at Micah 5 too." That's how well you know the scriptures. But as those wise men leave to go worship the newborn king, you stay home? Now, I'm sure those of you that know your history know that uh, King Herod was not a pleasant man to work for. In fact, he killed his own wives. He had more than one. He killed his own sons. One of the Roman emperors is reputed to have said, I would rather be Herod's swine than his son. Because as a Jewish person, he would be unlikely to kill pigs, but he'd be likely to kill his sons. So maybe they were afraid, but so afraid that they wouldn't even try to sneak out of the palace to visit later. Here's my point. You can know a lot about the Bible and have no faith. And I think those religious leaders, they knew a lot. They had a lot of head knowledge, but their faith wasn't in the word of God. Don't be that kind of person. Now, these Old Testament uh, prophets knew that a prophet would come. They knew that that prophet would be like Moses. In fact, in John chapter 6, and I'm going to read this passage to you, but in John chapter 6, verse 14, some men come to Jesus and it says, Then those men which had seen the miracle that Jesus did, he had fed 5,000 people, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. They knew about the prediction that Moses had made 1,500 years previously, that there would be a prophet likened to Moses and that he would speak everything that God the Father would command him. And they said, hey, this must, this must be the guy. But my guess is among that crowd that said, this is of a truth, that prophet, there were a few that probably cried, crucify him, crucify him just a short while later. Again, why? Because their faith wasn't truly in God's word. 
they knew that he'd be born in Bethlehem. We looked at that. But what's most amazing to me is that his own people, the Jews, who knew who Jesus was, who, who understood there was a coming Savior, let me put it that way, who knew there was a coming Savior, they rejected him. John chapter 1 verse 10 tells us he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, that would be the Jews, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. All of these prophecies, the parts that the prophets understood, the prophets parts that the prophets did not understand, all of these prophecies point to our salvation, your salvation, my salvation. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 again, of verse 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired diligently. What is salvation? I want to take a few minutes to talk about this part of our text I want to look at three things about this, the need for salvation, the role of faith, and the role of grace. The first thing is the need for, our, for salvation. The Old, the Old Testament prophets knew that we needed to be saved from something. They knew that we needed to be saved from our sins. By the way, evil is not something that happens to us. Evil is something that is in our own hearts and that comes out of us. A lot of times we like to think that evil is out there and it happens to us. And maybe because it happens to us, we end up pushed this way or that way and we end up doing wrong. But the truth is we do wrong out of our own hearts. Jesus said, that which cometh out of a man, that defileth a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. That's what Jesus said. The problem that we all have is sin in our own hearts that's expressed in our behavior, in our thoughts, and in our words. And it goes back even to before birth. All of our children are born sinners. Now, if you've been a parent, you understand that. But let me remind you, the first time that your toddler making a bunch of noise and it gets really quiet. <laughs> now at first it's like, oh, that's nice. They're not making a bunch of noise. Wait a minute. If it's quiet, if your toddler suddenly gets really quiet, there's usually a reason. And that reason is your toddler knows that they're doing something wrong and they don't want you to notice. Where does that sense of right and wrong come from? It comes from a conscience that God's given to each one of us. And yet that child, even knowing that there's something that's right and there's something that's wrong, that child will break his own, will, will violate his own conscience and, and, and do what is wrong. Why? Because we have this evil in our hearts. The Bible describes it this way, there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says, for all have sinned. That's you. That's me. That's, that's our problem. That's what we need to be saved from. We don't need to be saved from an evil that's outside of ourselves. We don't need to be saved from an evil society. We need to be saved from the evil that's in our own hearts. 
And our sin, that sin that's in our own hearts is the source of death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Now, I want to remind you, some of you have known this a long time, maybe this is new to some of you, but there's actually three kinds of death that are talked about in the, in the Bible. Death always means separation. The first type of death is physical death, where my soul is separated from my body. And you've all probably been to a funeral. Sad time. You look at the body there, and, and the outside may look the same, but the person is no longer alive. That's physical death. Sin is the source of physical death. But there's a second type of death that's even more significant and more serious than physical death, and that's the spiritual death that all of us begin in. When we are born, we are dead to God. Ephesians 2 describes it this way, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We start out dead. We don't respond. Our spirit doesn't respond to God's spirit from birth because we start out dead. That's spiritual death. But there's an even, and that's the separation of my spirit from God's spirit. But there's an even more significant death. And that's called eternal death. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Perish. Eternal death. That is the everlasting and tormented separation of the sinner from the Creator. Listen to what Romans chapter 20, the end of the chapter says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the death that I warn you about this, this morning. Yes, physical death is terrible. And spiritual death is even worse, but eternal death. The Bible says that as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment there are no second chances. I was talking with a man this week who had heard about purgatory. And he'd even been involved in, in uh, I believe it would be called a mass, where he would have gone to a structure, a building, and there would be priests and they would be saying prayers to hurry someone out of purgatory. There is no purgatory in the Bible. When a person dies, they immediately go to be in the presence of God or they're separated from God, and that is an everlasting death. An eternal death. Sin is the source of all death. And because of sin, we need a Savior, someone who can save us, who can rescue us from that death. Remember, the source of death is sin. If we had a Savior who could conquer sin, He could conquer death. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about. It tells us about a Savior who's conquered both sin and death. Let me read to you the end of that chapter. It says this, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who can save us from sin and save us from death, that eternal death that all of us face without him. Now go back to, well, you should still be in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 9 with me. Receiving 
This is where we started receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, I want to focus on that word faith for a second. But before I do, I just want to point out that you have not yet, even if you're a child of God, you have not yet received the final installment of your salvation. Think about that. Yes, at the moment of salvation, you were saved, you were rescued, you were delivered from eternal death. The penalty of sin was paid by Jesus Christ and you no longer face the penalty of sin. Secondly, and we don't live this way, but at the moment of our salvation, we were also rescued from the power of sin. Sin no longer has power over us. It no longer dominates our lives. We can be free of it. We can leave it behind. Now, unfortunately, so many Christians don't experience that daily victory, but God wants us to experience that daily victory. The penalty of sin is gone. The power of sin is gone, but we still live with the presence of sin until that day that we see Jesus Christ. And then we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And on that day, we'll receive the end, the final concluding result of our salvation which is we will be freed even from the presence of sin for all eternity. The Bible says he'll change our vile bodies like unto his glorious body. And I'm so eager for that day when temptation doesn't even affect me anymore. That's the end of our faith. But let's focus on that word faith for a minute because we receive this rescue from sin. <coughs> Excuse me. We receive this salvation by faith. Faith doesn't involve me doing anything. It involves God doing everything, but I do have to call out to him. First, uh, Romans, excuse me, Romans chapter 10. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me give you a, uh, an illustration, a word picture, and I'm, I'm just making this up out of whole cloth. This isn't from history or anything, but imagine somebody who has survived an earthquake except the building has crashed down around them, and they're trapped in one of those pockets in the building where they are not killed, but they also have no food, they have no water, and they are literally surrounded by tons of rubble. What hope does that person have for getting out of there? Zero they're not going to be able to move that rubble. It's only a matter of time before a lack of water and dehydration kills them, even before the lack of food kills them. And so they're there trapped in that pocket. They're alive, they're, they're, but, but they can't get out. And then they hear it, the sound of scraping. They hear workers uh, moving around and, and, and they, can, they, can, they can sense that some of that rubble, that tons of rubble is being pulled away from the building. What do you think a person in such a place would do? They're, they're trapped under that rubble, but they can hear people are moving that rubble away. I know what I would do. I would start calling out, hey, I'm down here. Get your crews over here. Now you hear about this happening. There'll be an earthquake and they'll hear voices. And they'll send special teams to that location trying to carefully and safely move the rubble to free people out. Now listen, the person who calls out did not save themselves. The person who says, hey, I'm over here, save me. They didn't save themselves. They're not smarter than the rest of us. What did they do? They recognized their only hope was in someone else rescuing them. And they called out. 
The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God has a desire to save people. God is a loving God. He's a merciful God who forgives. But you've got to call out because the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, go back to our illustration. The guy's trapped under the rubble. There's tons of rubble around him and he hears the scraping and he senses that things are being moved. And you know what he says? I must just be hallucinating. There's nothing that's going to, I'm just going to die right here. And so he never says anything. Now, he may still be rescued. I, I, this, this is where the illustration breaks down. But the truth is, you've got to call. You've got to realize that you are a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, and that only God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, God's mercy and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and his resurrection three days later, only that can save you from your sin. This is what we call God's grace that God would reach down in his mercy and in his goodness and save someone like me. God doesn't save us because we're good people and we deserve saving. God saves us because he's an amazing God and he's merciful. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 again. I'm going to pick it up in verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace, there's the first time that word appears in this passage. They prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Not something you earned, not something you did, it would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which is in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us did they minister the things. This gospel would come down to us and it would be by God's grace. There's nothing we did to earn it. There's nothing we did to deserve it. We don't pay for it. We don't owe God for it. When my wife and I were first married, in fact, just before we got married, I had just finished up my college education and I had paid that bill off and uh, she had paid all of her college education off, but um, we didn't have any money. And I was thinking, how am I ever going to be able to afford a car? You say, well, sometimes you can pick up a car for $500. I didn't even have $500. I had nothing. I mean, I had a little bit, but the little bit I had, I was trying to save for a honeymoon. I thought, you know, do I want to have a car or do I want to have a honeymoon? <laughs> Much of my honeymoon was paid for too, but I, I was trying to save for the, 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 the apartment we were moving into. You can imagine all the costs. I had no money for a car. And then a friend of mine said, here, you can have one of my cars. You know what I didn't do? I didn't reach back into my pocket and pull out my wallet and say, you know, I got a $1 bill here. It was his gift. He just gave it to me. Amen. Yeah, amen. Now, if you need a car, you pray about it. I don't have one to give you. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but you pray about it because God can do amazing things. But here's my point. He just gave it to out of the goodness of his heart. He didn't expect anything from me. He didn't, he didn't come back to me later and say, hey, you know that car I gave you? Now I need $500. Can you give me $500 now? He didn't do that to me. That's a gift. That's grace. God's grace is the same way. He doesn't look at me and say, oh, you, 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 you need this. You deserve it. I do need it, but you deserve this. You, you somehow have earned this. That's not it at all. I don't pay God back for it later. God's grace provides for my salvation.
The Bible says this, for by grace are ye saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's God's grace. So what does all this have to do with Christmas time? This is the first of, of four messages I want to preach about Christmas. And what does this one have to do with Christmas? Well, remember what John 3.16 tells us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God, the next verse says, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know why Christmas is so special to us as Christians? Because it was God fulfilling his promise to send a savior for his people. The prophets had heard about it. They sometimes wrote things down and thought in their own minds, how in the world is this going to work out? The prophets had thought about it. We get to see it. They weren't writing for themselves alone. In fact, what they were writing for was they were writing for us. And God, in His grace and in His power and in His wisdom, has preserved those words for us. And Christmas is a reminder that God keeps His word. Not only does God keep His word to send a Savior, but God will keep His word to save you if you'll call upon Him. Sometimes people wonder, well, you know, if I become a Christian, I don't know if I can live up to. There's nothing to live up to to maintain your Christianness. Because it's God's gift. And when God saves people, He saves them completely. There's nothing more to do. Now, I, I, I want you to understand, other times I'm going to preach to you that you ought to live for God. But your salvation doesn't depend on it. Your home in heaven doesn't depend on you acting like a Christian. It's a gift. Do you need to receive that gift of eternal life? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? That evil that's inside of you. Do you know that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life? The Bible says he who has the son has life. Do you know that you have life? A friend of mine ministered in a, a part of northeastern uh, United States where a lot of people were Catholic. They would say, hey, I'm Catholic. And he said he learned to ask the question, has your priest ever showed you how you can know that you have eternal life? And most of the time they would say, I have no idea what you're even talking about. Isn't that sad? That there'd be a group of people who say they know the Bible and don't share with others that you can know for sure that you can have eternal life. It's not a hope. It's not a you got to work toward. It's not a, okay, there's the door. Let me show you how to get there. It's a gift that's bought and paid for. You just have to receive it. If you are saved, are you grateful for the gift that God's given to you? That you've been freed already from the penalty of sin? You don't have to fear the second death. You don't have to fear eternal death. And you've all also been freed from the power of sin. You no longer have to give in to those evil impulses. You no longer have to say yes to temptation. Are you thankful for that? I hope you are. The Christmas season is about God keeping his word, and we can be thankful for that. Father, thank you. Thank you for gathering us here today. Thank you for sending your son after literally millennia of promises, and you kept your promise. When the fullness of time was come, you sent your son, and we're so grateful that you keep your promises. I'm asking this morning for anyone that is here that is not a Christian, 
They don't know that their sins are forgiven. They wonder if they have eternal life. They're afraid of the eternal death that awaits those who die in their sins. I pray that this morning, this afternoon, would be the day of salvation for them, that they would eagerly, humbly leave behind sin and come to Jesus Christ. I pray for those of us that are Christians. We are your children. We ought to be grateful that you keep your promises. We ought to be grateful that your son came and died in our place and rose again for our sins. We're so thankful that we don't have to pay the penalty for our sin. And we're so thankful that you have given us victory over sin. May we live that out. Keep us from walking in the flesh. Keep us from indulging our sinful natures. And teach us what it is to walk in the Spirit. Teach us what it is to experience that daily victory you have for us. Lord, we love you. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.